0: Illegal immigration reaches an all time high, Twitter cracks down on memes, and the front run of the conservative leadership race continues to falter. Plus, we'll talk about the state of the union and fake news. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. It has just been brought to my attention that today is Don Cherry's birthday. So, Don, if you're watching, happy birthday from all of us at True North. We love what you do. Keep being yourself. Keep being true to you, and you know that we have you have tons of support from Canadians across the country. Okay, let's get right into this. I mentioned uh, this story a little bit last week, briefly about the record number of deportees. So, there are over fifty thousand outstanding deportation orders in Canada right now, 50,000 people waiting to be deported. We know, of course, that Canada won't deport them. We've only deported on average about 500 people a year. So 50,000 people should be deported. We're probably only going to deport about 500. This is the story of illegal immigration that's just not getting reported anymore. The media has basically given up on reporting about illegal immigration because Justin Trudeau essentially told them not to. He said that, you know, if you're not reporting positively about the state of immigration, as per the UN Compact of Immigration, uh, Compact of My integration, uh, that you'd be basically be cut off and you'd be challenged by the government. So they're just not reporting on it anymore. Well, I decided to dig in and look at the numbers, and it is really, really surprising. So there were 63,830 asylum claimants that registered as re- refugees in Canada last year, 63,800 people. By comparison, in 2018, the prior year, there were 55,000 claims, and the year before that, 2017, there were 50,000 claims. So those numbers are already incredibly high. You know, when there was 50,000 a year, 55,000 a year, there was media attention, they were focused focusing in on, you know, what's happening at Roxham Road with tens of thousands of people crossing illegally there. And then also a surge of people landing at airports in Canada using false pretenses, basically lying to get into Canada, either with falsified documents or by lying and saying that they're coming as a tourist only to, when they land in Canada, make this asylum claim and ask for refugee status in Canada. So there was always a lot of reporting when this crisis was first going on. And really, the reporting is just ceased. You, you don't see it in the news anymore. It doesn't make headlines. It's not on the evening news. It's not in the newspaper. Talk radio is not talking about it. But but what's happening is that this number has drastically gone up. It's gone up 16% in the last year. So 63,000 people. No wonder there's so many people who have deportation orders pending because so many people are coming to Canada every year. So, so that 63,000 number, that is more than the entire number of asylum claimants received in the four years of Stephen Harper's majority government. So the entire time when Stephen Harper had that majority government, there were a total of 60,000 claims, 60,335 claims between 2012 and 2015, the four years where Harper had his majority government. Uh, Contrast that with Trudeau's four years, first four years of his majority government, where there was 193,000. It's just day and night. It's day and night. And where is the media to report on this issue? You know, Canada has a huge immigration program. Canada lets in more people per capita than any other Western country in terms of new permanent residents and new citizens each year. The government relies on this sort of consensus among all the parties that immigration is generally good, conservatives generally said, hey, you know, we need it to boost up the economy, build up GDP. Uh, Liberals and people on the left say, you know, it's our obligation. We have a humanitarian obligation to let people into the country. And also we need to sort of replace uh, the declining birth rates by, by boosting the population through immigration. So there's this sort of consensus across the board, but it really relies on Canadians having trust in the immigration system. And when you have a huge illegal immigration problem like Justin Trudeau does, that is just undealt with, unchecked, you know, he's completely dismantled the systems that were in place to stop this kind of activity... Canadians lose faith in the immigration system. They lose trust. This was the, that was the thesis of my book, Losing True North, that came out in 2016. That was a bestseller on Amazon. And my most recent book called No Border looks even closer at Justin Trudeau's just complete lack of border security policies. Check that book out. You can buy it on Amazon.ca. If you read it and you like it, please give it a five-star review. It really helps me out. So right now, the customer reviews of the people who have verified to purchase this book, they gave it a 4.9 out of 5. So the people on Amazon who read it, like it, I think you'll enjoy it too. Check it out. It's called No Border, Justin Trudeau's Assault on Canadian Border Security. I think it's the most underreported story in the country right now. And it's so important when you think, when you look around the world at all the chaos and all the sort of disorder that's happening, Canada is a secure, reliable, peaceful nation. And part of that is because we have safe, secure borders. If we just open that up and let people from around the world come in, they undermine the rule of law, undermine our security and safety, and ultimately, to really undermine our free society. It's incredibly important. So please check that book out. All right, moving on. So Twitter announced on Tuesday that they will be cracking down on memes. Yes, memes. So apparently we can no longer be trusted to tell the difference between something that is clearly a spoof or clearly a joke and something that is real news. So Twitter is jumping in uh, to manipulate the news even more, to manipulate your feed. Uh, but they claim that they're cracking down on what they call manipulated photos and videos, so they. Post Twitter, Twitter safety posted this video. On Tuesday, they said, we know that some tweets include manipulated photos and videos that can cause people harm. Today, we're introducing a new rule and a label that will address this and give people more context around these tweets. Our new rule, you may not deceptively share synthetic or manipulated media that are likely to cause harm. In addition, we may label tweets containing synthetic and manipulated media to help people understand their authenticity and to provide context. So this is just, again, an attack on conservatives on Twitter, basically. uh, Twitter is notorious for cracking down on conservatives. They repeatedly deplatform, remove conservatives while basically ignoring equivalent or worse behavior uh, from activists on the left. You know, when it comes to the sort of meme wars, conservatives are just better at it. Conservative memes are hilarious. And it's sort of a way for conservatives to Poke fun at, say, like the mainstream media, the establishment, uh, everyone on the left, including the big social media giants, is to make comical videos and 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 pictures, and you know this whole this whole culture of memes has sort of come up on Twitter and now Instagram as well. Uh, and the fact that the host of this platform wants to censor that, wants to take that away, to 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 cut that down, um, you know, we don't need a little label on Twitter to say this is this is manipulated media. When when you see a meme, you know it's a meme. And so this is just Twitter doing what they become known for doing, which is not providing a fair playing field, not really being a platform for free speech, but again, trying to manipulate the conversation, trying to manipulate speech in the direction that they ideologically believe in, which is, you know, it's based in San Francisco. Twitter is a far left company in a far left city. Uh, And so at the same time, as they announced that they were cracking down on memes, they also cracked down on a very famous high profile conservative journalist named James O'Keefe. O'Keefe is the founder of Project Veritas. If you haven't seen Project Veritas stuff, you have to check it out. It is incredibly impressive. So O'Keefe has made a name for himself for going undercover. He used to do it himself, uh, but then he became too recognizable. And so now he has sort of an army of volunteer journalists across the country who are incredibly brave. They're willing to go undercover in a lot of different situations. They've exposed high profile Democrats. uh, They've exposed, uh, again, people on social media in the Silicon Valley talking about how they deliberately censor conservatives. Well, his most recent video project uh, was exposing the extremism on the Bernie Sanders campaign. So as you know, Bernie Sanders is running for the Democratic nominee and hopes to become president. Well, James O'Keefe did an expose of the Sanders campaign basically just to show how radical, how truly radical his campaign staff is. So I'll just give you some quotes. He says, I've canvassed with someone who's an anarchist." with someone who's a Marxist-Leninist, so we attract radical, truly radical people in the campaign. Obviously, that's not outward facing. This is the kind of thing that the people who are working for Bernie Sanders, you know, they're true believers in communism, a lot of them, and O'Keefe exposed that. So, After his video came out, uh, of course, mainstream media in the U.S. is just equally as biased and terrible as they are in Canada. The Washington Post wrote a story about it and James O'Keefe requested a retraction. So he tweeted, retraction request. Dave Weigel of The Washington Post, the subjects featured in Exposé 2020 are not Sanders volunteers. Both Kyle Jurek and Martin Weisenberger are still paid employees of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Kindly retract another factually inaccurate bit of reporting. And for this tweet, which O'Keefe was just calling out a journalist for being dishonest, Twitter suspended his account temporarily. O'Keefe got a message saying your account has been locked. For what reason? They said that they violated Twitter's rules for posting private information. What was a private information? The fact that these two People were still paid workers for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Well, that information is actually public information, and that's how James O'Keefe was aware of it. He included the screenshot of publicly available campaign documents that showed that Sanders' campaign Paid these individuals. So again, Twitter just jumping in, being totally unreasonable, picking sides, and determining that O'Keeffe had broken rule when in fact he actually hadn't. And so his account has been restated. But again, this is just a state of social media cracking down on conservatives, being completely biased and unfair. And, you know, the idea that Twitter is some kind of like, you know, neutral arbiter is just so, so factually untrue. So many people have sort of given up on Twitter as a mode of communication. And that is why nobody trusts Twitter. Okay, let's move on. I want to talk. There's a lot going on in the conservative leadership race. So I want to get go and do a bit of a deeper dive into that right now. So Peter McKay is sort of considered the front runner in this race. There was an Ipsos poll that came out that basically said that more Canadians were considered voting Tory under Peter McKay than any other contender. So Ipsos asked a 1000 Canadians, both conservative voters and those who say they vote for other parties, under whose leadership they would consider voting Tory in the next election, a total of 40 percent pointed to Peter McKay compared to just 31 percent for Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole is also a frontrunner, but Peter McKay is sort of coming out ahead. You know, I honestly think a large part of why people like Peter McKay, I mean, he's got a bit of leader, a bit of name recognition, um, I don't really know what he's known for. Like, he was a Harper era cabinet minister. He was part of the merger between the PCs and the Alliance that created the Conservative Party of Canada. But you know, I don't really know exactly what it is that he's known for. I think he just sort of looks like a guy who could become prime minister. He has a very sort of stoic and professional look to him, and I think that that is why a lot of people say, "Okay, yeah, that guy looks like." A prime minister but you know you look at what's going on in his campaign and wow it is just a total mess over there in the peter mckay campaign so there was an exclusive earlier this week uh over post-millennial that says mckay won't commit to moving the canadian embassy to jerusalem breaking with party conservative party policy peter mckay told him post-millennial he would not commit to moving the canadian embassy in tel aviv to jerusalem Uh, I said there is a lot of priorities and I want to hear more about those priorities before I make these pronouncements on a whole range of issues. So he basically just said he's not prepared to make a decision on that issue. He was kind of pushed a little bit, and he still just said, look, it's a complicated subject, and I'm not in a position to do so. Uh, According to the Post Millennial, in a conversation between Peter McKay and members of the Toronto Jewish community, according to a source in the meeting who spoke on the condition of confidentiality, McKay said that he would not immediately move the embassy to the Israeli capital, despite the majority of Israeli government being located in the city. So McKay had this meeting, and he just said, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, that caused some major backlash. I mean, the idea that the embassy should be in the city that is the capital shouldn't be controversial. Countries, sovereign countries get to choose their own capital city. And, you know, anyone who's been to Israel, I've, I've visited the Knesset in Jerusalem. It's kind of bizarre that all of the uh, embassies and a lot of the Western countries have their bases in Tel Aviv, which is sort of, you know, a commercial like, commerce center, but it's not the center of, bi- of government. The center of government is at the Knesset in Jerusalem. That's Israel's capital city. That's what they consider to be their capital city. And countries get to choose their own capital. Uh, so it shouldn't be controversial. Trump made the move to move the, the embassy, um, you know, hugely popular in the U.S., especially with Jewish Americans. Uh, P- uh, Andrew Scheer also made that pledge. So the idea that Peter McKay would kind of backtrack on it, it just sort of shows a misunderstanding of the kind of mood and conservative principles and where conservatives are at. And so not very long after, Peter McKay released a following state the following statement about the Canadian Embassy in Israel. He says, Canada's Jewish community knows the Conservative Party stands shoulder to shoulder with them. When I was defense minister, I made it clear a threat to Israel is a threat to Canada. I will always stand with one of Canada's closest allies. As I have stated, it will be important to consult with our diplomatic officials at our embassy in Israel to make the necessary preparations for the move. It has always been my personal view that Jerusalem is the undisputed capital of the state of Israel, and that is where Canada's embassy should be and under my leadership will be located. So it's a pretty strong message, especially from a guy who like a day earlier said that he didn't have enough information and that he wasn't prepared to make that decision. So that's a pretty drastic flip-flop from Peter McKay, just kind of shows a little bit bit of kind of inexperience and not really knowing what to expect. Uh, Well, this wasn't uh, the only misstep this week. So Peter McKay posted the following message onto Twitter. He said, well, running for the leader Of the Liberal Party, Trudeau's campaign expensed $876.95 in yoga sessions and spa bills for Justin Trudeau. Liberals can't be trusted. And then there's this sort of video showing Justin Trudeau doing all these funny yoga poses and talking about how he rips off the taxpayer by using taxpayer dollars to enrich himself, including going on vacations, going to the spa, and taking private yoga classes. So, you know, the video is pretty good. And, you know, the message was pretty good. So, you you know, what's the problem? Well, the problem was that the media didn't like it. The media were critical of Peter McKay. And then once again, Peter McKay flip-flops. So even though he tweeted this video out from his own account, he came out and told the CBC he was not happy with the tweet and that he wants to remain civilized. So this, according to the CBC, Peter McKay was not happy with the tweet issued by his leadership team poking fun at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's yoga habit the conservative leadership candidate told CBC News. The tweet from McKay's verified account shows a photo of Justin Trudeau performing a yoga move on Parliament Hill, on his desk on Parliament Hill. McKay says he wants to maintain a civilized tone in the campaign for the conservative leadership and thinks the tweet crossed a line, but he said he won't apologize for it or take it down. Yeah, the tweet is still up right now, so it's kind of a weird move where McKay says like I don't like the tweet it's not civilized I'm trying to take a civilized tone but then he doesn't take it down so is he apologizing for it is he doubling down on it and that brings us to a segment that happened on CTV News this is just really bad for the McKay campaign so I'll play the first part of this clip it starts off as a very positive piece about Peter McKay Peter McKay sits on a board that helps children who have been abused and this is really highlighting the positive aspects of Peter McKay's sort of career and public life his priorities. It is a very positive piece. So this is clearly a friendly journalist who's doing a nice positive piece on Peter McKay. He should be grateful for that. Uh, I'll play the first part of the clip here.
1: Peter McKay invited CTV News along for a visit to Boost, a child advocacy center that helps
0: victims of abuse. He co-chairs the board.
1: In my estimation, there is no higher priority
0: than protecting children. So as you can see, it's very gentle. And then they sit down and they do the second part of the segment, which is an interview with Peter McKay, where they're talking about, you know, like I said, why he's getting back into public life. And this is where it really takes an awkward, awkward turn. And I really don't understand the mentality here of Peter McKay's staff. So let's play the second part of this clip. This is a sit down interview. This is when things really get off the rails. I I
1: noticed there was a video put on Twitter Um, talking about Justin Trudeau's yoga expenses and is that civil though I mean highlighting eight hundred and some on dollars in 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 yoga expenses no it isn't and and, uh, that was something that happened that I I, I'm not proud of I I don't uh, I don't have the opportunity always to vet every single thing that goes on that social media account so we're going to do better
0: and in that I, I, I think so that. That you just um, way over.
1: I'm sorry. At that moment,
0: his team abruptly
1: ended the okay. interview.
0: So really that was a very reasonable question and Peter McKay handled it well. I mean, the idea that he said, you know, he wants to bring a civilized tone, she brought up the tweet, which was a reasonable connection, and she did it in a gentle way, and Peter McKay handled it just fine. He handled it just fine. He's a grown up. He can handle a quasi tough question. If really, if this is what his staff believe is a tough question, they are really going to be in for it if Peter McKay becomes a candidate and he runs in a general election, because that was a very soft question uh, by media standards in Canada. But no, his staff literally jump in, interrupt the reporter in the middle of an interview to say, that's it, we're done. This is just terrible terrible media relations this is just staff overbearing I, I cringe when i watch this let's play the rest of the clip
1: i that's that's I, quite he said civility I, I mean she's just doing her job she's a journalist i'm doing my job guys yeah. Yeah. we've made a
0: decision that we'd like to um stop the interview Okay, like the idea that they say he went, she went way over. That was hardly way over. And the fact that Peter McKay himself jumps in and says, "Hey, Matt, she's just a journalist. She's doing her job." McKay was on the side of the journalist and his staff come across as bullies here. Of course, CTV plays that clip. So what could have been a positive puff piece story showcasing Peter McKay's compassion in helping little little kids and children that have been victims of abuse, instead the story becomes, you know. Uh, McKay walks out of an interview because he can't handle a tough question. So, you know, this this is just really bad. This is not the way that you handle a leadership campaign. And again, Peter McKay is the front runner. More Canadians see him as being the leader of the Conservative Party and say that they'd vote for him. And yet, you know, we have misstep after misstep after misstep. It is just not great to see. And on the other side of the campaign, Aaron O'Toole is, you know, what what Peter McKay is not doing, Aaron, Aaron O'Toole is stepping up and doing. He's taking a strong position. He's really coming across as sort of the you know, he, he, he he's a sort of law and order military guy, but he's coming across as a blue Tory. And that's, you know, that's that's the angle that he's going at. I don't know exactly how genuine it is. I've never known Aaron O'Toole to be like a staunch blue Tory, uh, but he's hitting the right notes. So here he is. Uh, by contrast, when uh, Peter McKay flip-flopped on the Israel issue, Aaron O'Toole released this tweet, Canada needs to stand with Israel again. As we did under Stephen Harper, it's time to recognize the reality that Jerusalem is Israel capital and move our embassy there. Very strong message with that image of O'Toole, so that is great. And same thing with when it comes to uh, Justin Trudeau's licensing and his attack on the media. Aaron O'Toole is there fighting back against it. So he says, look who's running attack ads against me, media union boss Jerry Diaz. He's right to be worried. If I'm PM, I'll cancel Trudeau's media bailout. Help me do it. So that is great to see. I think that the idea that Justin Trudeau is bailing out the mainstream media is horrible for our freedom of press and for democracy. So it's great to see a strong conservative say and fight back against that and say, no, no, no. When I'm prime minister, we will not be bailing out the media. And of course, because of that, he's getting attacked and he's fighting back against that. That's exactly what we want to see conservatives doing. But but the, the concern that I have with Aaron O'Toole is I just don't know how genuine it is. Like all of a sudden he's kind of coming out strong as the sort of blue Tory in the race, you know, when Pierre Polyev Withdrew that sort of left a void on the right side of the party, uh, the blue side of the party. And so Aaron O'Toole is sort of filling that gap. You know, maybe this is just Aaron O'Toole coming into his own, coming into his thoughts, uh, becoming more of a leader when it comes to pushing back against what is pretty obviously, you know, an uneven uh, playing field, pushing back against the media, standing up for our allies in Israel. That's all well and good. Uh, But this was pointed out to me, brought to my attention. So, One of the areas where Aaron O'Toole hasn't been so good on is standing up to attacks on free speech in the past. So in the 41st Parliament back in 2015, an NDP MP introduced a private member's bill called An Act to Amend the Canadian Human Rights Act and the Criminal Code, Gender Identity. And so a summary of the bill here. The enactment amends the Canadian Human Rights Act to include gender identity as a prohibited ground of discrimination. And so this private members bill was passed in March 2013 with the help of Aaron O'Toole. So most Conservatives voted against it. Here's the voting record right here. 137 Conservatives voted against it. In favor of it was the NDP... Block Liberal, and Green, and then a handful of conservatives, a handful of conservatives. So it was really close, 149 to 137. And if those conservatives hadn't voted alongside with the left-wing party, this private member's bill wouldn't have passed. Of course, this is a precursor to Bill C-16, which was one that Jordan Peterson was speaking out against, that basically said that you cannot misgender someone. Misgendering someone could be against the law. So you have to, you know, adhere to the whim of an individual to determine whether or not they believe that they are a man or a woman. Uh, this is this is frankly an, an attack on our freedom of speech and our freedom of thought in Canada. And there you see right there, Aaron O'Toole voting alongside the red Tories, enabling um, this left-wing bill to pass. So that's a bit concerning. I don't know if anyone has asked O'Toole about why he voted this way, but I would like to see a journalist ask that question and put that to him uh, to find out whether he still believes that that's the right course, whether he thinks that gender identity should be a protected class um, within the Human Rights Act, uh, or whether he's had a change of heart on that issue. Okay, let's move on. I want to talk briefly about the State of the Union. I don't usually talk too much about U.S. politics on the show, but sometimes there's just so much going on down there that's important culturally, even for us up in Canada. I mean, first of all, the fact that the Iowa caucus results have still not been announced. I mean, they didn't announce the first round until 24 hours after they were supposed to. Uh, There's a major malfunction when it came to how they were reporting the data through a new app. But really, all it makes you think is the, the Democrats are the party that wants to basically have a national takeover of the healthcare industry in the United States. They want to be the ones that are regulating social media. They want to be the ones that have more and more control over the economy. And yet, they can't even manage to count the votes in a state where what less than 200,000 people voted, I mean it was an absolute mess, a total mess. We still don't know who who won Iowa. Uh, wow, what a mess! And so things, I mean things aren't going well for the Democrats at all. They failed to convict uh, Donald Trump on his impeachment. Trump's on his way to being acquitted on those impeachment charges. Uh, you know, they couldn't figure out who won Iowa, which is just a total mess. And then the State of the Union happened. And Donald Trump did something that the Democrats just hate seeing. They hate seeing Trump delivered an amazing speech. It was very unifying. It was very presidential. He stayed on script. He didn't get into the sort of gutter politics at all. He was very, very good. And because of that, the Democrats just don't know how to react. And so they do what they typically do, which is basically they suck. They look like a bunch of sore losers. So the story coming out of the State of the Union, which again was very unifying. There were some really touching moments. It was really uplifting. Uh, Trump talked about the economics of his record, which are solid. Um, and the Democrats refused to cheer over and over and over again. They refused to celebrate the economic success of blacks, Latinos, women, and, a- and Asians. Uh, so this was part of the speech that Trump gave, and you can see that the Democrats, the the women in white um, and the Democrat side, they just refuse to applaud and and cheer over what really should be a good news story for the entire country.
1: African-American youth unemployment has reached an all-time low. African-American poverty has declined to the lowest rate ever recorded. The unemployment rate for women reached the lowest level in almost 70 years, and last year women filled 72% of all new jobs
0: added. There's, there's, there's several examples of that. There's several examples of that from the State of the Union. So the Democrats, again, refused to applaud for a young black girl who receives a scholarship. Numerous Democrats appeared to not celebrate a fourth grade black girl who received a scholarship on Tuesday night from President Donald Trump during the State of the Union. So here's a tweet. Another stunning but unsurprising moment from the Democrats during the State of the Union. Democrats remain seated as President Trump awards an opportunity scholarship to a fourth grader.
1: Janiye's mom, Stephanie, is a single parent. She would do anything to give her daughter a better future. But last year, that future was put further out of reach when Pennsylvania's governor vetoed legislation to expand school choice to 50,000 children. But Janaya, I have some good news for you because I am pleased to inform you that your long wait is over. I can proudly announce tonight that an Opportunity Scholarship has become available. It's going to you and you will soon be heading to the school of your choice.
0: So, a very touching moment there, and you can see the Democrats again just sulking and refusing to applaud. Really, really classless there. And, you know, again, this happened over and over again. So, Trump mentioned the assassination of Soleimani. Many Iranians on Twitter were celebrating this, and you can see again that the Democrats, uh, Nancy Pelosi claps for this one here, but really, there's not much. Uh, enthusiasm compared to the Republicans. And then I think this was perhaps the best moment of the night. Well, there's two top moments of the night for me. So here, President Trump shares a story of Kayla Mueller, who was a humanitarian worker who was in Syria. She was captured by ISIS, enslaved, and was kept by al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, as his sort of personal slave until he finally murdered her. So they paid tribute, paid homage, and you could see the parents there. Really, really touching moment, really good stuff from President Trump.
1: Kayla was kidnapped, tortured, and enslaved by ISIS and kept as a prisoner of al-Baghdadi himself. After more than 500 horrifying days of captivity, al-Baghdadi murdered young, beautiful Kayla. She was just 26 years old. On the night that U.S. Special Forces operations ended al-Baghdadi's miserable life, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley received a call in the Situation Room. He was told that the brave men of the elite Special Forces team that so perfectly carried out the operation had given their mission a name, Task Force 814. It was a reference to a special day, August 14th, Kayla's birthday. Carl and Marcia, America's warriors, never forgot Kayla and neither will we. Thank you.
0: So that was a beautiful moment. And another great moment was when Rush Limbaugh, longtime conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh, was sort of surprised by Trump. And he was given a Medal of Freedom by the president. They did it right there on the spot. You can see Rush is surprised and really moved, really touched by this news. Rush Limbaugh just announced that he had been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer, kind of shocking everyone. You know, Rush is an institution, especially for conservatives in the U.S. and around the world. Limbaugh69 told his radio audience on Monday that he had been diagnosed with advanced stage of the disease. He said the diagnosis was confirmed on January 20th. So a beautiful moment from Trump there. Uh, unfortunately, again, the Democrats' bad behavior is sort of overshadowing all this. So at the end of the speech, at the end of the State of the Union, Nancy Pelosi, who is the House leader for the Democrats, stands up. And tears up a copy of the State of the Union address, just just really looking like a poor sport there. she just sort of angrily with rage, just tears up this speech, which again just makes her look really petty and bad. Uh, well, I'm going to combine this with the fake news story of the week because this is just kind of pathetic. The Toronto Star, of course, of course, they celebrate Pelosi for this. So the headline over at the Toronto Star says Pelosi shreds Trump's speech right there on the podium. This is an Associated Press story, but it was carried in the Toronto Star. So here's a story. It says, Washington. And then she tore up the speech. No sooner had President Donald Trump finished his State of the Union address than House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ripped the paper it was printed on into two, right there, on camera, behind Trump's back. As he stepped down, she ripped it again, then a third time, and a fourth. If Trump knew about the American carnage going on behind him, he didn't react as he left. But Pelosi was on her turf with a deep understanding of her audience and she wasn't finished. So again, Pelosi's little pathetic piece of theater became the focus, and of course the Toronto Star is celebrating Pelosi. Well, the Toronto Star might not be aware. Nancy Pelosi is incredibly unpopular, incredibly unpopular. The whole sort of impeachment attempt where you know the Democrats really trumped up this news as if they had something, as if they had something, and then they failed to, they didn't have the goods, they were unable to impeach Trump, or they were unable to convict Trump on his impeachment. Nancy Pelosi is not very popular. A recent poll found that three-quarters of Americans say that Nancy Pelosi should be replaced, including half of Democrats. So even Democrats don't like her, they don't want her, but trust the Toronto Star to really celebrate Nancy Pelosi for basically throwing a temper tantrum at the end of the State of the Union. That is the state of the Canadian media. They have Trump derangement syndrome. They can't even acknowledge the fact that Trump gave a pretty good State of the Union address, and instead they print this story obsessing over Nancy Pelosi and how cool they think it was that she ripped up the speech. Okay, Toronto Star, that is why no one takes you seriously. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will be back again next week.